0: We're going to be doing the third section of the wasteland today, entitled The Fire Sermon. Now the Fire Sermon was to Buddhism, according to a note by Eliot, as the Sermon of the Mount was to Christianity, some five hundred years afterwards. Just some commentary on the fire sermon itself. Obviously, it's the title of the section, so it's supremely important. Here the Buddha admonishes his disciples to excise from the integral self the flames of passion and desire, which are aroused in relationship to the senses and the things of this world. To quote, the flames of anger, the flames of lust, the flames of illusion, one must put an, and here's a quote, an estrangement between these flames and oneself. So the Buddha encourages his disciples to eschew the things of this world, and live a holy life and then and only then may one on his own indelibly break through the wheel of birth and death and realize nirvana or enlightenment here one has the notion of the difference in Buddhism between as living by jariki help from within self-reliance to turiki, help from without salvation through intercession the monk has the dharma of the Buddha his teachings but he must do the actual work on his salvation by himself. Apropos, the monks of the time of the Buddha entered into the forest or a monastery for ascetic discipline. This kind of Buddhism was primarily monastic in function. It is the Hinyana, or small vehicle, ferry boat, with its main attribute being Prajna, or knowledge, and is typified by the Arhat, or the saint. As opposed to Mahayana Buddhism, which appeared at the birth of Christ, which is the large vehicle or ferry boat, where the main attribute is karuna, compassion, and the major figure is the bodhisattva, one of those taken vow not to enter nirvana till all other sentient beings have entered before him. The main point, again, being enlightenment, is determined by the individual effort of the monk himself to break free through the wheel of birth and death and realize nirvana. Self reliance. The fire sermon begins with midwinter spring. The Thames ice on the Thames is broken. The river's tent is broken. The last fingers of leaf of last autumn clutch and sink into the wet bank. In other words, they become compost and soil. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. It's the brown land because the rain has not come yet, and it's unheard. Why is it unheard? Because the nymphs are departed. Then you have the line from the high artist Spencer for his Purthal Amian, a poem that he wrote for the wedding of the two daughters of the Earl of Worcester, And they sing this refrain as they're marching along the Thames in kind of a wedding march. It's sweet Thames run softly till I end my song. Then we go back to the river during the summer the river bears no empty bottles, sandwich papers, cardboard boxes, cigarette ends, or other testimonies of summer nights. So we have midwinter, spring, we have the fall, and we have the summer. Obviously, the cleanup crews done a wonderful job to get rid of all this summer trash. And then we go again to the nymphs. The nymphs are departed, and they're friends. Or well, they're friends, the spoiled heirs of city directors, so... The loitering errors of city directors departed, as the NIMS have, but they have left no addresses, which is a key theme in the Wasteland, because no one really has an address in the Wasteland. I tend it as always up for grab. And then, by the waters of lemon, I sat down and wept. Lemon in Old English means lover, but lemon is also an attribute of Margaret Sands, where Eliot came to recover from his mental breakdown and the gloss from the line by the waters of lemon i sat down and wept is from the high art of david's psalms where he says by the waters of babylon i sat down and wept for thee zion In 587 king nebuchadnezzar of babylon conquered israel and deported a vast amount of people of israel to babylon and sent back an equivalent number of people to live in Israel, and they were called the Samaritans. But in 532, Cyrus the Great, the great Persian emperor who was called the King of Kings, conquered Babylon and allowed the Jews to return to the home, actually encouraged them to return home to rebuild the temple and to restore the cultural identity. Because of this, he was anointed a Messiah the only non-Israelite to be anointed a Messiah. And I would make the comment that Zion, of course, references to the the, uh, land that the Lord promised Abraham seven times, uh, Canaan, in other words, the the home of the Jews. But I think also it could be any safe place, any haven for problems, for suffering. Then we're at the high art of Spencer again, Sweet Thames run softly till I end my song. Sweet Thames run softly till I speak not loud or long. Then we have this terrible, ironic twist, as I've mentioned before, of the whole unity of the poem uh, is structured by a statement and then an ironic or opposite statement. So he makes this, this statement here, which reminds me of a line from Rhapsody in a Windy Night, The Last Twist of the Knife. And here it goes but at my back in a cold blast i hear the rattle of the bones and chuckle spread from ear to ear so what does one hear at one's back but the death rattle which i take to be the terror experience of the void which is at the very center of western consciousness and we'll go into that a little bit later so it's the death rattle that's even worse considering the gloss that it was lifted from marvell's little koi poem of seduction to uh, to his koi mistress where he says at my back i hear time's winged messenger so what is time winged messenger in the wasteland it's the rattle of the bones and the chuckle spread from ear to air it's the death rattle the next section uh, refers to the rat A rat creeps softly through the vegetation dragging its slimy belly on the bank it can't help but remind us of the line from the game of chess, We're in rats we are all in rats, Ellie, where the dead men lost their bones. And then we have a parody of the very final stanza of the wasteland, where the um, Fisher King is fishing alone on the shore with the arid plain behind him. But Elliot here, his parody is, While I was fishing in the dull canal on a winter evening around behind the gas house then we have the lines musing upon the king my brother's wreck and on the king my father's death before him which in one way shows the patriarchal lineage of the passing down of kingship in england from father to son and if the father is dead then the oldest son takes over if the oldest son is dead then the younger son takes over but i also think it's a nod my Brother's Wreck is a nod to Eliot's dear friend, French friend, Jean Verdonel, who was killed in World War I in 1914, early on. He was a pilot of a plane. And in 1919, about the time the waistline was starting to be written, Eliot's father died. So therefore, My Brother's Wreck, My Father's Death before him. And then you have a coming together of the two great movements in Freud, of eros, the self-animating principle, and thanatos, the reality principle, the death principle, white bodies naked on the low, damp ground. So this can either be two white bodies naked copulating, uh, as an example of eros, or two white bodies are dead on the damp ground, which is an embodiment of thanatos. Then it goes on to state, and bones cast in a little low dry garret, A gert is an addict it brings us back to madame sesosterous with her uh, horoscopes and her tarot cards so the bones are cast to uh, foretell some sort of a future event but what really is happening again we have the rat again it's rattled by the rat's foot only year to year so these bones that are cast are not even looked at at this particular time because the only um, personage within the context of the garret is the rat and that only comes year to year at one time then we go on but at my back from time to time i hear which is kind of a repetition of the cold blast i heard at my back that we looked at before but at my back from time to time i hear the sound of horns and motors which shall bring sweeney to mrs porter in the spring now Sweeney, for Eliot, was the ape man, the uncouth man. and Sweeney Erectus, Sweeney brandishes a scapel in a brothel and scares the hell out of everybody. And in Sweeney and the Nightingales, <clears throat> the nightingales of course being typified by the transformation of Philomel and her inviolable voice in the desert, these uh, nightingales are deriding Sweeney so, the sound of horns and motors, which shall bring Sweeney to Mrs. Porter in the spring. And we'll see who Mrs. Porter is in the next line. But the gloss, or the allusion, is to Day's Companionship of Bees, where it says, But at my back, from time to time, I hear the sound of horns and hunt, which shall bring Actian to Diana in the spring. Actian was a beautiful young hunter who had the misfortune of seeing the goddess Diana, the virgin goddess, the goddess of nature bathing in a pool, and in her anger she transformed him into a stag, and his own dogs uh, tore him down. The following line uh, we learn about Mrs. Porter. While the moon shone bright on Mrs. Porter and on her daughter, they washed their feet in soda water. This is taken from a World War I Australian marching song, And of course, you have the parody of the Last Supper. They washed their feet in soda water, but Christ washed the feet of his disciples. Then I think we have the most enchanting line of the entire Wasteland, to me at least. It's written in French. It's from Paul Verlaine's first translation of Wagner's opera, *Opera uh, Parsifal. And I'll try to do it in French. A.S.A. Bois des Enfants, Chance dans le le Coupeau. The voices of the infants sing in the chapel. So, just a gloss on the Fisher King preliminarily. We'll go into it in great depth in the sixth lecture. But uh, the Grail Enchantress tries to seduce Parsifal, who's on his quest for the Grail Castle. When she fails, she transforms herself. She becomes humbled and purified and washes his feet with her hair and her tears so that he is allowed to enter into the Grail Castle heal the old uh fisher king and become the new fisher king by himself so here we have the voices of the children singing the praises of christ the next part of the fire sermon is rather interesting it's onomatopoeic in its nature twit 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 jug 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 so rudely forth to room we have known Prior to this, the Jug-Jug is what the Renaissance poets uh, named the sound of the nightingale to be. And here you have a revisiting of the forceful rape of uh, Philomel by Patrissia, so Ridley forced to Roo, and the, which is the third major transformation in the Wasteland, where Philomel is changed into a nightingale. Then we go on to Unreal City, which is a gloss from Baudelaire's Fleur de Mal*, where he says, City of Dreams, where specters jostle the passerbys in broad daylight. And then, under the broad brown fog of a winter noon, Mr. Eugenides, the Smyrna Merchant, which reminds us of the tarot card of the merchant that Madame Sosostris plays, and Mr. Eugenides is the Smyrna Merchant. He's unshaven, with a pocket full of currants, currants are kind of like raisins. He asked me in demotic French, demotic just meaning ordinary French, to luncheon at the Cannon Street Hotel. The Cannon Street Hotel was a hotel in London on Cannon Street. It was a venue where many businessmen would come from continental Europe and stay there, but it was also a hotel known for its homosexual liaisons. And then the persona goes on to say, and followed by a weekend at the Metropole. The Metropole was kind of a swanky um, hotel in Brighton, in the southern coast of England. And then we come to the figure, the problematic figure of Tiresias. Not Tiresias, but Tiresias, the great prophet. Um, Tiresias, at one point in his life, went out walking with his staff and they came across two snakes copulating. He touched the snakes and was transformed into a woman. Seven years later, he was out walking as a woman and found the two snakes copulating again and touched them with his staff and was transformed back into a man. Of course, Jove and Juno, the head gods at that time, um, decided they would make a bet. Um, they, would, they would make a bet on which sex had the best sexual satisfaction. When they asked Tiresias, who is the one who is qualified to give such an answer, he answers the woman. And Juno becomes so angry, for whatever reason, she blinds him. And Tiresias is given prophecy as a compensation by Jove himself. Tiresias is also a formidable mythological figure Uh, He was the prophet that forecast the downfall of the great uh, Theban kings, uh, Oedipus and Creon. He also had an integral part in the Odyssey. Odysseus braved the underworld to consult with Tiresias about the state of Ithaca at that particular time. So he has a rich history of of mythological heritage. But Eliot makes use of Tiresias in a different way. Uh, There's a note that Eliot makes. I won't read its entirety, but you'll get the gist. Tiresias, although a mere spectator and not indeed a character, is yet the most important personage in, in the poem, uniting all the rest. What Tiresias sees, in fact, is the substance of the poem. Now here we come to the problem that we addressed in the very beginning of The Wasteland. The idea that uh, Thereseus represents a single consciousness, a manifestation of a single consciousness, into different voices, speakers, or roles. Um, reminds us of the short story by Dickens that we looked at earlier, where Sloppy says, I do the police in different voices these all seem to indicate that elliot felt that there was a single coherent version that manifested itself in roles uh, voices and speakers but i do not believe that that's the case for the first for the first uh, meaning um, the wasteland is just too fragmentary it's very nature too fragmentary to offer any sort of a singular coherent coherent Um, vision again uh, the uh, the wasteland uh, is just again as I mentioned too fragmentary to be able to hold some sort of a single coherent vision in itself Uh, as uh, the words from the burial of the dead um, all I know is a heapful of broken images so I as I mentioned before in our introduction I tried to trace the various voices thinking perhaps there was a one consciousness that manifested themselves. But the voices were too discordant, too distant, too dissident, and too strange from each other to ever be a manifestation of a single coherent vision. And as I mentioned before, I kind of side with the new critics of the 70s and 80s who said it wasn't the author's intention or meaning that was important. It was the text itself, the substance of the text. In other words, what Eliot said in terms of Tiresias, what Tiresias sees is the substance of the poem. So, what is the function of Tiresias really in the Fire Sermon? This great mythological figure, what is his function in the Fire Sermon? Basically, in this one of the biggest mythic disassociations in all of uh, literature, I would argue, he witnesses, his function is merely to oversee or look or witness a seedy, tawdry, banal affair between two lower-class people, two young people, um, having a meaningless sexual encounter. So, I'll begin with, I, Teresius, though blind, throbbing between two lives... Old man, with wrinkled female breasts, can see at the violet hour, the evening hour, which is dusk, the time when daylight and dark are beginning to mix, and there's the reality and the illusion of dusk. The evening hour that strides homeward and brings the sailor home from sea, which is a glass from a fragment of a Sappho poem, The important thing is the typist home at tea time. So the next, I don't know, 20 lines, 25 lines deal with the typist and her seduction by what what is called her carbuncular host, her warty host. And she's getting ready for him to join her. She clears breakfast away. She lights the stove, lays the food out in tins, uh, on the divan or piled at night, her bed. All her clothing that she's going to wear, the stockings, slippers, camisels, and stays. Then we have an interjection by Tiresias himself. I, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled dugs, perceived the scene and foretold the rest. And what does he foretell? It is merely this meaningless sexual encounter between the secretary, I mean, the typist, and the young man. And as per se for Patricia's function in the fire sermon he says I too awaited the expected guest in other words his only function is to witness what's going on so the young man carbuncular arrives and he is but a small house agent's clerk pretty low down the echelon in terms of financial uh, security um, one of the low on whom assurance sits as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. Bradford was a town in northern England that got very rich um, because of the, they supplied the munitions for the uh, war effort. And there were a number, not a number, but several um, people who became millionaires of uh, speculation on that munitions that was given to the army. And then uh, it goes into the actual seduction of the carbuncular host, to the slutty typist Uh, the time is now propitious as he guesses the meal is ended she is bored and tired endeavors to engage her in caresses if undesired in fact she's really not very much interested in having sex with this man but just goes through the motions and his exploring hands encounter no defense his vanity requires no response makes a welcome of indifference. And I, Thereseus, have for-suffered all and acted on the same divan or bed. So there he suffered again, the seedy, banal, tawdry affair on the same divan or bed. I, who have sat by Thebes below the wall, um, he was instrumental in the bringing down of the great Theban kings, Oedipus and Creon, and walked among the lowest of the dead, which uh, describes uh, Odysseus entering into the dangers of the underworld to consult the spirit of Thereseus about the condition of his homeland in Ithaca. Then finally, he bestows one final patronizing kiss. Patronizing, I think, is the key word and gropes his way finding the stairs unlit apparently she couldn't even afford lights to enlighten her stairs then we focus on the typist herself and her reaction to the sexual encounter uh, she turns and looks a moment in the glass her brain allows one half formed thought to pass and here's a judgment on just what's happened with this seduction well, now that's done, I'm glad it's over. In other words, this encounter, this sexual experience, was absolutely meaningless to her whatsoever. And then the line, when lovely woman stoops to folly, which comes from Oliver Goldsmith's The Vicar of Wakesfield, where his daughter, Olivia, is seduced by the villain of the piece and goes through this agonizing guilt trip on herself for allowing herself to be seduced. A vast contrast to the typist, the slutty typist, who says, no, that's done. I'm glad it's over. Kind of representing the uh, modern woman. She smooths her hair with an automatic hand, a kind of reflux action, and puts a record on the gramophone. And then we have another ironic twist by Eliot, Shifting from this scene of seduction, this seedy, banal, tawdry little affair between the typist and the cobwebcator host, which in fact, Teresius' only function is to witness, and uh, that's it. That's all his function is to do, my contention at least in this section. So the next line, This Music Crept by Me Upon the Waters, goes back from the banal affair to the high art of the tempest Uh, this is where ferdinand of naples hears the first voice the first singing of ariel Prospero's sprite and he says this music crept by me upon the water it's right before ariel reveals to him about the supposed death of his father alonso where he's where she says full fathoms five thy father lies and then we have a little bit of what Yates called unity of culture in the middle of London. Oh, city, city, I can sometimes hear beside a public bar in Lower Thames Street the pleasant whining of a mandolin and a clatter and a chatter from within where fishmen, not fishermen, but fishmen lounge at noon where the walls of Magnus Martyr hold inexplicable splendor of Ionian white and gold. So, anyway, Magnus Martyr was a church that Eliot was well acquainted with. I believe it was in the financial district that he worked in, but he admired very much the interior uh, design that that was made or designed by the great English architect, Christopher Wren. I think Wren lived during the 19th century, 18th or 19th century, and it's Ionian, white and gold. Another kind of made in the style of, of Greek, uh, of Ionian Greek. And then uh, we we come to a contrast of historical periods. The first is the modern period, where the rivers, river sweats oil and tar, in other words, pollutes the Thames, and the barges adrift with the turning tide. And then it's contrasted with the flowering of renaissance the renaissance culture in england with elizabeth it says that elizabeth and leicester who many people speculated was her lover although she insisted that she was the virgin queen and modeled herself after diana so elizabeth and leicester beating oars the stern was formed a gilded shell and they float down the thames with all the pomp and circumstance so you can see the difference between the historical periods of the oil and tar just polluting the Thames to this glorious manifestation of the richness and luxury of the Elizabethan age. And then we come to the section of the uh, fire sermon where we have uh, the exposition of the Rhine maidens from Wagner's Twilight of the Gods who attempt to seduce and then frighten the hero Siegfried as returning the gold which he has stolen from them which brings either power or death or both to its possessor and since the theft the Rhine has lost its beauty Um, the story goes on Brunhilde who was the fallen Valkyrie that Siegfried rescued from the mystically induced sleep and the circle of fire that Odin had put around her only a hero without fear Can pass through the fire, and he did. But later on, the story goes, is that Brunhilde came to own the gold, and Siegfried, in disguise, came and stole it back. And Brunhilde was so enraged that she called upon her husband Gunther and his friend to kill Siegfried and told him the only way you can kill Siegfried is from behind, and they do that. And like James Merrill says in his book of Ephraim, let the blood on the rhinestones. And after that, uh, Brunhilde restores the gold to the Rhine maidens and the Rhine is restored as well as the Rhine maidens to the original beauty. And then we have uh, something that I should make a note of. Um, It's kind of hard to articulate, but I will try to do that. There are two two parts. Two lines uh, centered in in the fire sermon, which is actually the agonized cry of the Rhine maidens when the gold is stolen by Siegfried, where they say, Wa la 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 lia, Wala la 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 lia, and they do that twice. Again, that's the agonized cry of the Rhine Rine maidens at the loss of the gold, at the stealing of the gold by Siegfried, which they never. Uh, I don't think, imagine they get back. And finally, you have Eliot's great parody, which he always is so wonderfully good at. The Rhine maidens, the three Rhine maidens, are parodied by the three Tam sisters. Sexuality has a great importance in this part of the uh, of the fire Sermon. I'll go on here. Trams and dusty trees, Highbury bore me. Richmond then Q and Didney. Highbury was a slum district in northern London. Richmond and Kew were stops along the uh, Thames, uh, primarily in the richer districts, um, undid me, so perhaps um, a CPO from a major corporation uh, engaged her, either as a prostitute or just seduced her, but she's undid by Richmond and Kew. And it's by Richmond there seems to be a confession here, I raised my knees supine on the floor of a narrow canoe. I don't know if you can have an act of sex on the floor of a narrow canoe, but it seems to indicate that that might be the case. So that's the first attempt, Sister. The next Sister says, My feet are at Moorgate. Moorgate was a stop in the London Underground Uh, in the financial district and she says my feet are morgate and my heart under my feet after the event he wept he promised a new start so we have the eternal triangle between the husband the wife and the mistress eventually apparently the wife found out about the affair rejected him he went back to the mistress and said after the event after being breaking up with his wife he came to the mistress and wept and promised a new start, which is always the, the uh, statement by the, the man to the mistress. And her comments are simply, I made no comment. What should I resent? Again, this nonchalance towards sexuality that we saw with the typist itself. And finally, the last town sister says, and this is a bleak, bleak vision, that is articulated by Elliot. On Margaret Sands, which is interesting because that's a seaside resort where Elliot went to recuperate from his first nervous breakdown in which he wrote some 19 or 20 pages of The Wasteland, the Pound found so quite wonderful. And it goes on, On Margaret Sands, I can connect nothing with nothing. The broken fingernails of dirty hands my people, humble people, will expect nothing. La, la. And that's the end of the story of the Rhine Maidens and the Thames Sisters. And Then we have a whole shift of the paradigm. Uh, Eliot makes a note that he had brought together, and it was no um, no fluke, that he brought together the, the two great ascetic traditions. In the East, the Fire Sermon, and <clears> in <throat> the East, Augustine's confessions. So you have the line, to Carthage then I came. In other words, Augustine. Uh, um, Carthage was an ancient northern African city that Augustine lived as a young man. Now, Augustine was quite a profligate as a young man. He had several concubines in Carthage. He would later call Carthage the city of unholy loves. He even had a son by a union with a concubine so to carthage then i came so um, i also want to mention that augustine later on in his life became one of the most esteemed and important doctors in the catholic church and as elaine pagel said in her in her writings he essentially invented original sin We're all human beings adult human beings as well as newborn babies are inflicted with mortal sin and she called it a sexually transmitted moral disease so to carthage then i came so this is augustine coming to carthage and then we have us uh, some lines from the fire sermon intermingling burning 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 remember the flames of passion and desire that arise from the senses and their contact with the things of this world. And then directly quoting the Confessions, uh, Eliot has Augustine say, O Lord, thou pluckest me out, O Lord, thou pluckest burning. And here I think we can find what I had previously mentioned, the difference between, in Buddhism, Turiki and turiki. Turiki is the way of the monkey, and Tureki is the way of the kitten. In turiki, when the kitten meows, the mother cat comes, grasps him by the scruff of his neck, and brings him to safety. But Joseph Campbell noted, when the monkeys come down from the trees and cross the road, their babies are hanging precariously on their back. So on the one hand, you have Tureki, oh Lord, oh Lord, save me. On the other hand, you have journey key, where one does the work on himself that one needs to do, achieves on himself what one needs to do. So you have the contrast between the two. Um, you have the fire sermon, where we talked about um, the monk having to break through the wheel of birth and death and achieve nirvana on his own. So you have journey key, help from within, self-reliance. And contrasting with that in Augustine's confessions, with O Lord thou pluckest me out, O Lord thou pluckest burning, you have Turiki, help from without salvation through intercession. And that's my conclusion of my commentary on the fiery sermon. Thank you.